Timothy chapter 3. 2, excuse me, chapter 2. 2 Timothy 2. Looking at verses 3 through 7 this morning. Last time we were together in 2 Timothy, which was two weeks ago, we spoke of being made strong in God's grace, if you recall. We traced this concept from here in 2 Timothy over to Ephesians 6, which speaks to a similar concept of being made strong in the Lord by putting on the whole armor of God. We learn that the call is not to be strong. It is indeed to be made strong, not to abound in our own capacities, but to abound in God's grace. We learned that God's grace is and must be by definition something given to us without merit, without personal worthiness. And then finally, we were exhorted once we are successful in living in this grace to then take these truths that we have learned and commit these truths to others who will then commit those truths to others that the church might be strong, that the church might grow. But this path, of being made strong in God's grace, this path of standing in the day of battle against Satan and his minions, uh, this path has historically not been an easy path. Certainly not been the easy path. Because to be strong in grace, to commit these truths to others, brings us into direct contradiction to the direction in which the unbelieving world is constantly moving. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14, that broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, and narrow is the way which leadeth to life, and few there be that find it. As Jesus sought to illustrate the path of the unbeliever and the path of the believer, he uses that picture of a trail, of a path of sorts, one broad, which has a very broad gate, right, a very broad way, and then one that is narrow with a very straight gate. Now, that word straight there is not like a straight line. It would be like, a bear, the, like, like the bearing straight, right? The idea of a straight, when you think of it in geography, is actually a narrow passage, right? Where land comes in on either side and creates a narrow passage, and that is called a straight. And that's the straight that you find here. Not straight is the path like you're on the, 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 the straight path like it's, it's in a straight line, but straight as in narrow. Straight is the gate. Narrow. Constrained in that way. By their very definition, we must understand that these paths, a broad path that leads to destruction and a narrow path that leads to life, that those paths, by their very definition, aren't going in the same direction. They can't be going in the same direction, right? Because one leads to destruction and the other leads to life. Those paths can't be together if they end up in different places. And if we carry this metaphor through into the lives of believers and unbelievers, it is undeniable that the manner of thinking and living that accompanies the life of a believer will be fundamentally different. I often like to use the word distinct rather than different than that of an unbeliever. I tell you quite often, it's not that you're always going to look different than the unbeliever as it would relate to any of the external appearances, but you will always look distinct from the unbeliever in the very fabric of how you live your life, your worldview, your foundation, your hope, your expectation. Not simply different, however. 
The manner of thinking and living that accompanies the life of a believer is not just different, distinct from the unbeliever, but oftentimes we find that the manner of thinking and living is in fact in direct opposition to the manner of thinking and living that accompanies the life of the unbeliever, right? Because they're on a path to destruction and we are on a path to life and those paths aren't necessarily side by side Thus, it's not just that we will live in distinction at times, but sometimes we will, in, 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 in very real ways, live in opposition. And there are any number of points where the natural reality of this opposition or this distinction will cause the world to put itself against the believer, to live at odds with the believer. And I say it this way intentionally and carefully, because we established in our context last time that our battle is not against the unbelieving world. So it is not that, take my nuance here, it is not, the, the natural reality is not that we will be at odds with the world, but that the world will be at odds with us. It is not that we will find in the world our enemies, but that the world will make us their enemies. Our battle is not against the people of this world, right? They are not our battlefield. They are our mission field. They're not our enemies. Our battle is against Satan, the God of this world, who has blinded the minds of them that believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. 2 Corinthians 4.4. 4. The unbelieving world is not our enemy. The philosophy that drives the unbelieving world that motivates their blindness and their dedication to the God of this world, compelled by the deceits of the great enemy of God, Satan. He and his minions, the philosophies that, that he espouses, the blindness that enters into the hearts of men, that's the enemy, but not the people. They're the mission field. And if we're going to be made strong in the Lord by being made strong in grace, if we're going to put on the armor of God and step into that battlefield that Ephesians chapter 6 tells us is there, where we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places, well, then we need to understand that we aren't stepping into a picnic. We aren't going to have a play date with the principalities and powers who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. We're going to war, and war is hard, and war is dangerous. War needs preparation. War has casualties. So Paul says in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 3, Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Now, I cannot stress this enough. You're not going to war against the people of this world. You're going to war against Satan and his deceits. Don't lose sight of that. When we sing those uh, classic hymns, Onward Christian Soldier, and we sing those hymns that have a, a battle-esque feel to them, there is a subculture that has arisen in the Christian church that sees the people around them as the enemy and them as fighting this battle against that enemy of, the, of sinners. 
Don't let your mind drift into that context because sinners are the ones that will persecute. Sinners are the ones that will mock. Sinners are the ones that will disdain. But it is the God of this world that has blinded the minds and the hearts of those that believe not. Because we're never going to win people to Christ if we see them as the enemy rather than the mission field. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Take note that this verse begins with a second thou therefore, just as we read in verse 1. Remember in verse 1, we read, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Paul is speaking to Timothy. Thou therefore, right? That's what we see from our King James Bibles. The these, the thous, and the thines is always a second person singular reference. The you's, the yours, and the ye's is always a second person plural reference in our King James Bibles. That's why the King James distinguished. That's why they made the difference. Uh, they didn't do it just to be old-fashioned or anything of the sort, there was a definitive translational reason why they use the these and the thous, and it's not just to be old. Paul is speaking about uh, this, this, speaking to Timothy about this necessity, and he gives a second imperative command. Remember in chapter 3, verse 1, chapter 2, verse 1, excuse me, that first command, that first imperative was be strong. We translated it because it was in the passive voice, be made strong strong. It's not something that one is performing himself. It is that the subject is uh, um, receiving the action. We aren't making ourselves strong, but rather we are to live and be strong in the grace that God gives us. The second command we find here in verse 3, thou therefore, not just be made strong or be strong, but then thou therefore endure hardness. And this is a normal verb. We don't have to wrap our minds around anything unique about this one. This is just an active voice verb, endure hardness. This is something that we are commanded to do, not commanded to allow to be done to us, but something that we are commanded to do, endure hardness. And now as I say that, I say it in context. Don't ignore the command of verse 1 as we consider the command of verse 3. The first step in the process of spiritual warfare as we saw in Ephesians chapter 6, where we see that same idea, be strong in the Lord, and that was a passive voice verb, be made strong in the Lord, and then here, be strong in grace, in the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't ignore that the first step in the spiritual process is, is being strengthened by God, by God's grace, to put on the whole armor of God daily, to put on God's truth, to put on God's righteousness, to put on our, our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace, to put on faith, to put on salvation. Remember, that doesn't mean that we're putting on being born again every day. The word salvation has a number of different contexts. The idea that we are saved, put on that reality that we have been saved from the power of sin, from the penalty of sin. And then, of course, to use the, the, the word of God, to speak forth the word of God. And so in doing so, we become ready to stand in the evil day. We are prepared for the day of hardness. And then once we are prepared, once we have strengthened, we have been strengthened by God's grace. Once we have the armor of God on us, once we have assimilated God's truth and God's promises unto the day, then it's our job to endure that hardness, to stand. All in God's strength. All in what God has appropriated for us. He's given us the armor. He's told us how to put it on. And, and we, we, we put it on. He, he has endowed us with the strength. And then, it's, and then it's for us to stand, to endure. You can't cheat the system. As a Christian, temptations are going to come. 
as a Christian, it is inevitable that the manner in which you have been called to live your life will bring you into conflict with the world around you. It's inevitable. It has to happen. It's not a question of whether it's going to happen. It's simply a question of when it will happen, how often it will happen, and to what intensity it will happen. So once you have been strengthened in God's grace, you have all of the resources at your disposal to get through the battle. And the only thing left to do is to endure that battle as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. To fight the battle to the best of your ability. To utilize all of the resources at your disposal to achieve maximum victory. To be a good soldier. And this is, of sorts, a sliding scale. Not every soldier, just because he's in the battle, shares the same degree of readiness, nor does every soldier share the same degree of responsibility. Right? Verse 4. No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. As Christians, we don't get to choose whether or not we are in the battle. When you took up that cross to follow Christ, you took up that cross into a world that is naturally moving in contradiction to you. Everyone fights the battle between light and darkness. Even if it's not the, the elements of the world themselves, you still have the devil, right? You still have the flesh. Even if we live in a society that is, is generally, as we do, live in a society that is generally friendly to you so that you're not going to face much resistance, that the worst you, you might expect if you were to go door knocking and share the gospel, the worst I've ever received at least in, in the, the extensive amount that I've, I've door knocked in this area has been a guy uh, very much so yelling in my face. Not too bad as it relates to an effort to share the gospel, but we still battle with the temptations of the flesh, do we not? We still battle with the very elements of our sin nature. We still battle with the trials and tribulations that come, the temptations that Satan would bring our way, the discouragements that Satan would bring our way, the, the way that he would seek to divide and to confuse and to, to, to uh, um, destroy. Even apart from persecutions as it relates to the, the, the direction that the world is headed. And so everyone fights in this battle that is a believer the questions are simply, first, whose side are you on? Are you a believer? And then second, how effective will you be? When you step out into the world, you are fighting a battle against Satan and his philosophies. You are fighting to bring light to those who are in darkness. You are fighting to represent the cause of Christ. You are fighting to maintain purity in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. And whether you like it or not, once you place yourself under the banner of the Lord Jesus Christ, you become a spiritual target for the enemy. But Satan doesn't necessarily have to destroy you in order to make you inconsequential in the battle, does he? Satan can just distract you and make you inconsequential. Make you so busy doing things that don't really matter unto eternity that you simply have no time to do anything that does. You're distracted. You're inconsequential. And you say, well, Satan doesn't really bother me too much. It's because he doesn't have to. It's because you are inconsequential to him because you're not doing anything. So you're fine. Maybe Satan can just deceive you into thinking that the battle itself doesn't matter or that you can be strong in yourself. So you spend so much time destroying yourself, 
You're racking yourself with guilt, racking yourself with fear, uh, uh, trying so hard to earn the favor of God that you, you can't earn, living so far outside of grace that Satan says, I don't even have to worry about that guy. He's tearing himself apart. Satan doesn't have to attack you if you're attacking yourself all the time. If you're living in such deceit, whether that be through doctrinal error uh, or, or through your own, um, your own problems, that you're just tearing yourself apart, once again, you're inconsequential. You've taken yourself out of the battle. Or maybe Satan can make you fearful so that you're simply unwilling to stand. And so you kind of stand behind the tree in the day of battle. And you're so fearful that you become inconsequential. Satan doesn't have to worry about you because you're not actually engaging, because you're afraid. But a good soldier of Jesus Christ is none of those things. He is strong in God's grace. He endures hardness. And he does not entangle himself with the affairs of this life. It's important to maintain a perspective on the nature of this. Notice that word there, entangle, means to entwine. He does not entwine himself with the business of this life. And in order to maintain a perspective on this teaching, we must remember Paul's target audience here. Paul is speaking to Timothy. Timothy is a minister and an elder in the church of Ephesus. And he is also a man unto whom was committed the dissemination of the truth. He uh, was committed the, the uh, responsibility to appoint elders, leaders in the church. He was, a very, uh, he, was, he was a very influential man in the church. In soldier terms, we might call Timothy a field general. Not a private, not a sergeant, but a field general. He was in the heat of the battle. Do recall that Ephesus was a battleground. Ephesus was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the temple of Diana, a place of tremendous evil. And so he was in a hotbed of, uh, of, of a spiritual stronghold, as it were. And because Timothy was a minister of such a uh, unto such a church, in such a position, in such a place, at such a time, Paul is specifically reminding him that he simply does not have the luxury of entertaining the affairs of this life. Timothy was, if we could call it this, a career soldier. It was his calling and the very essence of his creed. And as I say that, I hope you understand that this verse is not going to mean the same thing to every believer. Because every believer has a different role in the body. Every believer has a different role in the army, if you will. In the military, there are different roles, and they come with different responsibilities. They come with different privileges. Your private in the military does not, all he has to do is do what he's told, right? In his off hours, he does as he will. He's responsible for no one but himself. He does what he is told to do, and he does it to the best of his ability, and he has served his purpose. He has done his part. Now, the sergeant is also responsible for himself, as every soldier is, but then he is also responsible for the men that are under his care, right? So he doesn't just have to look to himself when he is, he, he looks to himself when he's finished looking to his men. And so he has an extra layer, which reduces the amount of free time. It reduces uh, the, the amount of ability he has to get himself into uh, any sort of a compromised position, whereas the private might be able to do some things in his free time um, that 
that would not interfere with his duties, but, but with which he, he can do because he doesn't have anything else to do. He doesn't have any other responsibilities. A sergeant, or as we continue to go up the ranks and the captains and the majors and such, they've got responsibilities by which they have to set some things aside that they may otherwise have been able to do in order to do the things that they need to do, that they have been asked to do. So that by the time you're a field general, you have so many men to care for. You have so many things to do. You're discussing strategies. You're checking supply lines. You're making sure everything is delegated properly that there's not a lot of time left for yourself. And if you get yourself entangled in things that are going to distract you, you're not going to be effective. So the men that are put into these positions are the men that have shown themselves through time and circumstance to be both willing and able to handle the responsibilities that are placed upon them. And when these promotions come, it is with the expectation that they will handle the extra duties that they have been given properly. Now for this sacrifice, they will receive compensation they will receive commendations. They will, what comes with those added responsibilities is an added level of, of accountability or an added level of glory if the battle goes your way. But not every man is willing or able to make those sacrifices, nor is every man asked to make those sacrifices. Now carry this into the spiritual. We've each been given a different calling. I am called to be a pastor. You have not been called to be a pastor. God has not called every man to be a pastor. God has not called every person to the mission field. God has not called every man to have the same gifts and callings. And in fact, quite the opposite is true. God has made the body of many members, diverse members, and each is called to play his part. And certain parts are only needed in certain scenarios. The feet must always be ready to walk, but there are many times where the feet are not necessarily being used. The hands must be ready to work, but there are many times where the hands aren't necessarily being used. The ears, however, they're kind of always on the clock, aren't they? The eyes, always working when you're not asleep at least, right? In the body, there are different callings. There are different gifts. Christians are not called to come out from a presence in this world. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, we can't reach the world if we aren't in the world. If we separate ourselves from, the, from unbelievers because they're unbelievers, then we're never going to reach unbelievers. Christians are called, however, to come out from the direction that the world is going. We're not called to, get, to become like the world to win the world. We're called to intersect with the world at points along their path. We're called to intersect with the world and to interact with the world through those intersections. And then they say, well, why don't you keep coming and say, sorry, I'm going this way, you're going that way. And so there's a limit to the amount of fellowship that you can have with the unbeliever simply by virtue of the fact that you are walking in an entirely different direction than they. But if you stop intersecting with the world, you'll never win the world. So the entangling of the affairs of this life does not speak to whether or not we engage with the world or even whether or not we engage in the material or temporal activities of this world necessarily. 
whether or not we engage in the things which this life has to offer, whether or not we have homes and cars and clothes and boats and such, whether or not we engage in recreation and entertainment, that's not necessarily what, what, what this is speaking to directly, except to say this. First of all, every soldier is commissioned to maintain the clear distinctions between himself and the enemy, which means... It's one thing to get entangled in the fact that we are living in this material world, to, to interact with this material world. And entangled, of course, that word in and of itself means that you become intermeshed too deeply. It's one thing to interact with the material world. It's another thing to interact with the priorities of Satan. It's another thing to place myself into the proximity of the enemy. By the enemy, I don't mean your neighbor. By the enemy, I don't mean politicians. By the enemy, I don't, what, I mean Satan. Satan's philosophies, Satan's priorities, Satan's desires, Satan's ideas. It's one thing to enjoy entertainment. It's another thing to sit down for two hours and allow Satan's philosophy to be pumped into my head. We have to have discernment. It's one thing to enjoy the amusements of this world. It's another thing to allow satanic elements into my eyes and ears and to allow the philosophies of Satan to encroach in my life. Second, every soldier, soldier is commissioned to avoid anything that would compromise the duties which he has been given and the role which he has been called to play. So if my particular calling within the body is compromised or distracted by something that is in the world, then I should not be doing it. Whereas you might have the time and the circumstance by which to engage in something, I may not be able to by virtue of the fact that by doing so, it is going to compromise my ability to do what God has called me to do. So first, I need to make sure that I am not entangled with the enemy himself, Satan and his philosophies. There's no excuse for that as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. You can't excuse that one away. Second, I need to make sure that the things I am engaged in as it relates to this world are not entangling me in such a way that it is compromising my role in the body. So if I spend too much time distracted by the things of this world that I'm not doing what God has called me to do, then I am not being a good soldier. Third, remember that unto whom much has been given, much is required. And if God calls you, if you aspire unto greater heights of service for the Lord, just know that with those greater heights of service for the Lord will come greater responsibilities. And it may very well be that the things that you were able to do five years ago, you are not able to do anymore because in doing so, it would thus, at this point, compromise your capacity to be a good soldier of Jesus Christ, where it didn't five years ago. Th those things can change. So while you and I must remain completely loyal to these principles, we do so in order that not, not that we take the, uh, our precept itself and, and stand on it and say this can never change, but rather that we allow ourselves to assimilate these principles in order not to be entangled with the affairs of this life. And you and I have very different roles in God's army. You and I are going to have very different lines drawn regarding what this entanglement looks like, and that's okay.
but we will share in these common principles that in each of our lives we are seeking to avoid fellowship or entanglement with the enemy himself, philosophy of Satan. Entanglement in such a way that I am not able to do the duties that I'm called unto, whether that be as a father, whether that be as a husband, whether that be as a pastor, whether that be as an evangelist, whether that be as a servant in the church, whether that be uh, my particular gifts. If you have the gift of giving, but you spend all of your money on things that, that, are, that are not profitable, then you will not have what you would need to work out the gift that God has given you. You have thus become entangled. If you have the gift of evangelism and you have a burden and a desire and a capacity to share the gospel with others in an effective way, and yet you spend all of your time sitting on the couch eating potato chips and watching movies, then you have become entangled in such a way as it has stripped from you the capacity to do what God has called you to do in the body. And then, of course, if you aspire unto greater service, just know that with that comes greater rewards, but it also comes with greater responsibilities and accountabilities. This philosophy should undergird all of our thinking. And while it will work itself out in different standards and different understandings and different shades of, of, of living and different manners of life, this if, if, if there's something that is incongruent in that philosophy, that's an area where you really need to search your heart. And the question does become, where should you draw that line? And, and as I've said, I've alluded to, I'll say plainly now, I cannot answer that for you. That's a question I cannot answer for you. What, who is entangled? I could probably answer for some of you whether or not you are entangled based upon certain choices you've made and the, the degree to which I know you. But I can't answer that for any of you definitively. Except to say two things. First, the moment the things of this life are interfering with what you know God would have you to do to serve the church, to win the loss to Christ, you have been entangled. Know it. And as I mentioned, this may change over time based upon different responsibilities, different seasons of life, different accountabilities, different callings. Second, to whatever degree a man is willing to yield the things of this life for the things of the life to come, to whatever degree you could look at the things of this life, the, the, the amusements, the enjoyments, the things that, that, that this life has to offer that are just fine in the Lord, that are not inconsistent with your calling, yet to whatever degree you would be willing to yield the things of this life for the things of the life to come, that is an investment which is worth it every single time. Jesus said in Mark 10, verses 29 and 30, Verily I say unto you, there is no man that hath left house or brethren or sisters or father or mother or wife or children or lands for my sake and the gospels, but he shall receive an hundredfold now in this time houses and brethren and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the world to come eternal life. You reap what you sow. The amount you invest into eternity is the amount that will bring forth fruit in eternity. Don't expect a general's reward in heaven if you only do the work of a private, if you live the life of a private. And we spent a good deal of time focused upon the soldier metaphor that Paul has used in verses 3 and 4, but that's not the only metaphor we find within this passage. He doesn't stick to this metaphor. As a matter of fact, he uses two other metaphors within this passage in order to help us understand this concept. And in verse 5, we read this. 
And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. The next picture Paul gives is of a sporting competition. Now, before we get into the metaphor itself, take note of the fact that Paul is using the picture of recreational entertainment in order to connect this concept to Timothy and to the other readers of the epistle. Paul was under some degree of expectation then, at the least, that Timothy, or at least others who would read this epistle, would be able to connect personally, to connect to the concept of athletic competition. For many, the entertainment value of athletics was perfectly within the bounds of their freedom in Christ. Paul expected that they would know it and understand it to the degree that if he made a reference to an athletic competition, that they would understand it, right? So they weren't living completely detached from the world where they didn't understand the athletic competitions that would happen in various Greek cities, right? Now back to the point. Paul says that anyone who competes in, in athletics in order to win... And, you know, that's not everyone, right? There are plenty of people that play sports just to play sports. I don't think Paul was one of those people. He strikes me as kind of a play-to-win kind of a person. But he says anyone who plays to win knows that if he's going to actually win, actually win, he has to play by the rules. He has to complete on his own abilities and merits. He can't be lazy or cheat and take the crown from someone who has put in the effort to be the best at his craft. Now you can if you're Tom Brady or Bill Belichick, but you can't typically, right? Now see, I made a sports reference. Some of you understand that sports reference. Others of you don't understand that sports reference. That's okay. Whether you understood or not, that's okay. But that's the general rule. As a matter of fact, that's one of the things I've taught my children in the home, is that as they strive in competition, I have a certain child, a couple of children that are a little bit more competitive than others, we went through a process of telling them, if you cheat, you didn't ever actually win. You may have come out on top, but here's what you know, you didn't win. There is no glory, there is no honor in coming out on top through cheating because you cheated. There's, there's no victory in that. It's what we'd call a Pyrrhic victory, an empty victory. You didn't win. And so my children know if somebody cheats, they didn't win, regardless of whether or not they end up with all the cards in their deck at the end of the game or not, because they cheated. And that's what Paul is saying here. You're not actually crowned unless you strive lawfully, unless you play by the rules. And you can't put in the effort, uh, a minimal amount of effort and expect in that minimal degree of effort to get high degree of, of satisfaction. You can't play at college football level and expect to get NFL money, right? If you want the big prize, you've got to make the sacrifices. You've got to put in the time. You've got to put in the effort so that you can compete with others who have done the same and come out, on, uh, come out victorious. You can't sit on the couch and eat potato chips, pay off a couple of referees and take the crown without putting in the effort. And the point is the same as before. You will not get the rewards of the kingdom of God if you aren't willing to invest in the kingdom of God. You can't expect to place your love and priorities on the things of this earth and get rewarded in the life to come as if you put your, your priorities on the life that is to come. Now, just a quick side note. I am speaking this morning to those who are already in Christ. None of this is of direct, in the direct context of becoming born again. 
We're not talking about earning salvation from the penalty of sin here. We're speaking of those who have already been redeemed by their, uh, from their sins by grace through faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ, who are now living the Christian life, who are soldiers of the cross, and are thus building up rewards in heaven for the work that they are doing for Christ upon this earth. There is no work, there is no effort, there is no merit by which a person can be saved from his sins and receive eternal life. And even as it relates to the rewards of the believer, never forget that the whole context of this in 2 Timothy chapter 2 is a context of first being allowed to be made strong in God's grace. The question is, how willing are you to yield? Right? Not how talented you are. We're not talking about human capacities here. Verse 6, the husbandman that laboreth must be first partaker of the fruits. This is the third metaphor. The first metaphor was the soldier. The second metaphor was the athlete. The third metaphor is the farmer. If you want to eat of a garden, you've got to put in the effort of tilling it, planting it, weeding it, watering it. You aren't just going to wake up one day, stretch your arms, look out your window, and have a whole produce aisle. It doesn't work that way, right? And the amount of time and energy that you put into growing is going to be proportional to one extent or the other to the amount that you will glean of the fruit. I may plant a garden, not really do much, let it do its thing, maybe have a good rainy season, things went pretty well, the sun wasn't uh, too hot, things, th things were good, not put in great effort, and yet get a measure of fruit, marginal fruit out of it. But the man who puts in the effort, the man, all things being equal, who puts in the effort, who cares more about the crop, will receive bigger, healthier fruit for his labor. Likewise, you don't get to be a partaker of my fruit for eternity. I don't get to be a partaker of your fruit for eternity. What you plant, what you water, it will grow and it will bear fruit. I can't plant it for you. I can't water it for you. The man who labors, the man who sows, the man who waters is the man that's going to have, he has the right to be a partaker, and he will be. You will partake of your fruit in eternity. Don't expect to have rewards in heaven for your parents' labors. Don't expect to have rewards in heaven for your church's labors. The husbandmen that laboreth must be first partakers of the fruits. And so it is that we find several concepts presented throughout these three metaphors. We see that a man's rewards in eternity are directly conditioned upon his faithfulness to his calling. To whatever degree he would seek into the rewards of the eternal, to this degree he must labor for those rewards. That laboring for these rewards means not becoming entangled with the things of this life that would distract us, that would turn away our hearts from the things of the world that is to come. We see that there are no cheats, no workarounds to these rewards. You can't cheat God's system. I will not be rewarded if I do not endure hardness. I will not be rewarded if I live in a manner that is not faithful to God and His Word. I can't trick God. I can't put on a suit, get cleaned up, come to church on Sunday, say the right words, hold my Bible in my hand, open it, go home and live like the devil for a week, and think that God is going to be convinced that I'm, I'm, I'm a good Christian. You can't cheat it. You can't cheat the system. You can, you can trick your pastor. You can trick your father. You can trick your mother. You can trick your children. You can trick your friends. You can trick your neighbors. You can trick church members. But you can't trick God. And see, when we prioritize the material at the expense of the spiritual, when we try to look spiritual at the expense of being spiritual, we're only doing ourselves a disservice. Well, yeah, but people think I'm godly. But what? you're not going to stand before people in eternity. 
You're not going to stand before me. I'm not going to be the guy on the, on, on the judgment throne in eternity. And I'm not going to say, well, I knew you and you were a pretty good person and you tried really hard, so here's your rewards. That's not going to be it. The one who knows your mind and your heart is the one that's going to be judging you. Not me. Not your parents. Not your children. The one who knows the inner workings. The one who misses nothing. The one who is perfectly just. He's the judge, right? So we labor for eternity because you can't cheat the system. The man that strives for the masteries is not crowned unless he strives lawfully. You can't cut corners and expect that God won't notice. And then we see that there is no spiritual outsourcing. The laborer must first be partaker of the fruit. I cannot pay others to earn spiritual rewards for me. I cannot glean spiritual rewards by proxy of my proximity to godly people or by proxy of who my parents are or who my children are or what my church does. So then each soldier is called to be strong in God's grace and so to endure hardness. And thus Paul exhorts in verse 7, Consider what I say, and the Lord give the understanding in all things. Consider yourself in relation to these things, and may God give you understanding to know how they fit together for you. And that's my prayer for you as well. That you would truly consider these things, and that God would grant you understanding as it relates to your relationship to them, not falsely binding yourself nor foolishly excusing yourself, but that you would understand your relationship to eternity, to the call that God has placed upon your life to be a soldier, to strive for the masteries, to plant and to water and to cultivate the fruit unto which you would desire to be a partaker. Now, as the context continues, we'll explore more next time. We're going to see that this context of this hardness Paul speaks of is actually suffering for the gospel. This is the context that he's giving to Timothy, specifically suffering for the sake of the gospel. And this was the call of Timothy as a minister to be willing to suffer. Paul was suffering. Timothy had suffered, and he would suffer more. We'll talk about that next time. But in a moment, I'm going to ask you a few questions by way of application just to bring these things home. But let's just pause for a moment and consider yourself. Don't consider your sibling. Don't consider your spouse. Don't consider the person sitting across from you. Consider yourself. Are you entangled? with the affairs of this life. I could go down a list of things. I'm not going to. I don't know that it would be profitable to do so because they can be different for, us, for various people. But the question is just honestly, in the integrity of your heart, before the Lord. Are you entangled with the affairs of this life? Are there things that you know God wants you to do? Maybe it's a deeper commitment to the body of Christ. Maybe it's more time with him in prayer and study. Maybe it's greater outreach to your friends and family. Maybe it's greater giving to the needs of God's work around the world. Maybe it's fill in the blank. You know it. The Holy Spirit has laid it upon your heart. You're, you need to reach out to that person. You need to invest your time in them. It's going to be time consuming. It's going to be exhausting. But you know you're supposed to do it. And you say, but my favorite show is on TV but I have the, this, this thing to do, but, I, but, but, but that's my time to go fishing, but fill in the blank. And you are now weighing in the balance whether or not you're going to do what the Lord has laid upon your heart and you're going to invest in this way that's tiring and difficult and you don't know what the outcome will be in this life or you're going to invest in yourself. Are you going to be entangled in the affairs of this life or are you going to continue unto the path that God has called? 
Are you going to be a good soldier? Paul would give a very similar message in 1 Corinthians. Perhaps you're familiar with it. 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verses 24 to 27, he says, Know ye not that they which run in a race run all? Again, the athlete's um, analogy. But one receiveth the prize, so run that ye may obtain. And every man that striveth for the mastery is temperate in all things. He controls himself. Now they, the unbelieving world, does it to obtain a corruptible crown. But we an incorruptible. I therefore so run, not as uncertainly, so fight I, not as one that beateth the air, but I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means when I have preached to others, I myself should be a castaway. Are you running that you may obtain? Have you submitted yourself to the grace of God and so been strengthened in order that you might be victorious in the day of battle, resist the devil, resist the philosophies, reach out to the world, uh, not just stand in, in myself and, and uh, avoid the temptations and the snares of falling myself, but then be able to tell others, be able to bring others out from the snare of the devil, be able to enlighten the hearts of others to the truths of God's word. Have you brought your body into subjection to the will of God so that you might please him who has called you to be a soldier? Are you striving for the masteries? Are you playing to win? Or are you happy just to be on the team? I'm on the team, it's enough, I'm in. Just being an existence Christian, a Christian just floating through this life. For today, that might be comfortable, particularly because we live in a society that thus far has allowed for that without much friction. Those days may be ending. But regardless of how comfortable it is in this life, just know that you are giving up tremendous amounts in eternity. So let's ask some questions in closing. Number one, what role has God given you right now, and are you being faithful to it? Where does God have you right now? Do you even know? Do you, have, have, have you taken the time to prayerfully consider what God wants you to do with your days? What God wants you to do with your time? What, how could God use your gifts and your abilities? Maybe it's a fairly small commission you have right now. Be at church, live a testimony among your family, your coworkers, your neighbors. Maybe that's all you can handle right now. Maybe that's all you're willing to do right now. Fine, we'll get to that in a moment. But simply put, are you being faithful to what God has you to do today? Fathers, are you being faithful to raise your children? Mothers, are you being faithful to raise your children? Are you being faithful at work to do as you are called to do? Are you being a good employee as God would call you to? Are we being good citizens as God would call us to? Are we doing the, the basics, the things that we all have, without even getting down to the nitty-gritty of, uh, of God actually laying upon your heart that person to call and to invest in, that neighbor to invest in. Are you being faithful? Maybe you've been frustrated because you feel as though you aren't doing very much, like God hasn't given you anything to do or you don't know or you feel like you're missing what God would have for you. Maybe, maybe it's not that you're missing it. Maybe that God has only given you the basics and you're just not doing a good job at being faithful to the basics. To whom much is given, much is required. The man who, who, who is faithful in that which he's been given will be faithful in more. No employer is going to give a person who can't even do 
the basic job a better job. You do good at the basics, then you get elevated to the next level. Then you get the promotion, right? If you're not a good private, you're not going to be a good sergeant. If you're not a good sergeant, you're not going to be a good captain. So are you being faithful where you are? And do take note, the call is for faithfulness because the strength comes from God, right? I'm not asking you whether or not you have superhuman abilities and some gifting. This isn't about you being the best in the kingdom. It's God that works in us both the will and to do of his good pleasure. God doesn't need talent. Can we just say, say that plainly? God can make talent, right? John said to the Pharisees, you say you're children of Abraham, God can of these stones make children of Abraham, right? God doesn't need you to, become, to be the best orator or the, have the best memory to be used by him. He can make talent. He can pull talent out of anyone. What God needs is faithful men. Men who will take what they have been given and give it to God. Point number two. Question number two. Set of questions number two. What role might God give you if you are faithful and willing? Are you willing? How much do you want it? Imagine what God might do with you if you were both faithful and willing. For some, that's the last thing you want to imagine. <laughs> what if, Father, you were faithful and willing and all of a sudden God lays it on your heart to move to that other state or that other country to become the backbone of some church that's just starting out? Maybe you don't want to be willing. But more than that, how many hearts in this room would want to obey a commission if they were given to it? You're in the war. You know eventually God wins. But do you care whether or not today's battle is won? Do you care what awards await you on the other side? Does it cross your mind what you might be forfeiting because of laziness or apathy or selfishness? Are you playing to win? In Genesis chapter 32, we see this really interesting account where just before Jacob enters back into the land of promise, he wrestles with a man who is the angel of the Lord until the breaking of day. At one point, the Lord dislocates Jacob's knee and Jacob keeps wrestling. And they wrestle until a point where this man, the angel of the Lord, begs Jacob to let him go. And Jacob says, I will not let you go until you bless me. And the Lord did bless Jacob there, called his name Israel, said he would make of him a great nation because he has prevailed with the Lord. He has wrestled with the Lord and has prevailed. That tenacity that was in Jacob is exactly why God made him Israel. It's not because Jacob was some sort of special guy. It's because he had a tenacity that said, I will be blessed. I spoke about this during the uh, COVID time. When I preached a message on that a little bit. I will be blessed. I must be blessed. I won't take second best. I want every reward that I might possibly get in heaven. I will not let you go until you bless me. Jacob was not a uniquely moral or strong man. I think we know that. He was not a very moral man. 
But Jacob had the faith to want more from God. And because of that, God gave it to him. Do you want more from God? Would you even be willing? Would you even engage in the wrestling match? Would you say, I'm good, God? You've already given me stuff. I'll take that. That's enough for me. And where might we be if we were willing and faithful? Final question. What are the rewards of eternity worth to you? Are they worth your reputation among your friends? Your friends, they're unbelievers or they're marginal believers, but you know what? They don't honor the Lord. They don't do what is right. They are not committed to the precepts and the principles of God's word. But you know what? You like them. You don't want to alienate them. What are the rewards of eternity worth to you? Are the rewards of eternity worth suffering in your family for the gospel? Yeah, but if I, if, if, if I live the way I'm supposed to live, then I'm going to cause problems with my relatives. I'm going to cause problems with my family. They don't like the gospel. They don't like God. And so I just, when I'm around them, when in Rome, are the rewards of the promises of eternity worth fighting that battle? Again, not alienating your family, just living out your faith. Not taking a Bible and smacking them on the head with it every time you see them. Just living out your faith consistently. Not changing, not compromising, not giving in because you're, you don't want conflict. Not giving in because you don't want problems. Are the rewards of eternity worth the loss of a job opportunity? You stand for your faith. I'm sorry, I will not work these hours. I need to be at church. Well, then you can't have the job. Okay. Because I need to be among God's people. I'm sorry, I can't take that job if you're going to ask certain things of me that, that forbid my moral convictions. Well, then you can't have the job. Okay, I'll find a job where I can operate in good conscience because it's worth it. Are the rewards of eternity worth giving up the American dream? Go live on the backside of nowhere in some country ministering to some people who aren't very interested in what you have to say. Is it worth it for the rewards of eternity to lose the comforts that we've all come to enjoy? Are the rewards of eternity worth less in your bank account, less discretionary funds to give to the needs of others? Are the rewards of eternity worth these things or, or have these things become worth more to you? Have you been in some way, shape, or form entangled with the affairs of this life? At the end of the day, the call is not about a direct set of actions or inactions but about faithfulness to the commission of God upon your life, your time, your priorities, your desires, your investments. Are you being faithful to the place where God has put you? As we close today, it's a very personal message. As I've said already, it's a message I can't necessarily answer these questions for you. All I'm doing is posing the questions in such a way as for you to search your own heart 
And that is the call this morning, that you would pray that prayer of the psalmist in Psalm 139. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. And see if there be any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And maybe it's not a wicked way. Maybe it's just a prioritization issue. Maybe it's just that you have been yielding. You have been leaving rewards on the table. And you know it. And you know, it's not sin. You're not doing anything sinful. You're just, you have prioritized some things in this life over the things of life to come. And you simply know there, yeah, there are rewards on the table. Uh, the, the Lord is prompting my heart to talk to that person, to invest in that person. And I'm doing my own thing and I, I'm still doing this and still doing this and still doing this. But I'm, I'm not following those promptings and, and you are just leaving those rewards on the table. Do you want more? Might you consider a little bit harder what you're giving up and what you're gaining in return? Let's allow the Spirit of God to work in our hearts to help us understand our relationship to these issues and our relationship to the battle that the Lord has called us to fight. Let's close in prayer. Lord, I pray for God's people and I ask that you would help us. Help us as your people to not be entangled with the affairs of this life, that we may please him who hath called us chosen us to be a soldier. And I ask that the Spirit of God would be taking this, these principles and applying them to the hearts of each of God's people in a meaningful way, helping them understand and to know how they can grow, where they can grow. And I do pray that God's people would have a willingness in their hearts, that I would have a willingness in my heart to grow. May you be pleased with our response. I ask in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to Pastor Jamin Wickler from Legacy Baptist Church in Buffalo, Minnesota. More information about Legacy Baptist Church and a library of sermons are available at www.legacybaptistchurch.net.